Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In his seminal work, The Trickster and the Paranormal, the parapsychologist George P. Hansen argues that the modern skeptical movement, that rogues gallery of debunkers, exposers, and acolytes of doubt, is irremediably implicated in the unreason it seeks to eradicate. When Freud told Carl Jung that psychoanalysis was to act as, quote, a bulwark against the black mud tide of the occult, I think he was saying something similar. With the emphasis it put on dreams, fantasy, automatism, and unconscious drives, Freudian psychoanalysis was an attempt to fight fire with fire, to tame unreason by means of the same. It's telling that while Freud held up his talking cure as the crowning achievement of the Enlightenment, there were positivists just down the street who would soon peg it as troubling evidence that the Enlightenment had failed to banish the old gods. One person's bulwark is another's open floodgate. We live in a mysterious universe, and it often seems to me that no part of it is wholly untouched by the ambient mystery. I can't help but see in the likes of James Randi, the stage magician who devoted his life to debunking supernatural claims, an attempt not so much to prove that the weird doesn't exist, but to inoculate us against its very real presence. In a way, Randi and his fellow skeptics attune us to the weird— because even as they do the decidedly noble work of exposing the faith-healing quacks, fraudulent mediums, and masters of legerdemain who beguile the credulous and exploit the desperate, they also entice us to discover the innumerable strangenesses that they either cannot or will not debunk. Because the simple truth is this. For the modern skeptical movement to be right in its fundamental claims, all reports of paranormal occurrences would need to be wrong. In a sense, you only need one genuine ghost for the entire world to become a haunted place. But what if even the ordinary, rational world that the skeptics want to convince us encompasses the whole of the real were itself rooted in a kind of unreason? What does it mean to be a skeptic in a world where everything is always already weird? The conversation you're about to hear was inspired by a recent post on the Weird Studies subreddit, where listeners can discuss the ideas we explore on the show in a spirit of openness, charity, and healthy skepticism. If you're not on that sub, I urge you to check it out. There's also a vibrant Weird Studies Discord community that will welcome you with open arms if you come knocking, and of course the Weird Studies Patreon is a place to go for anyone who would like to support the show. Finally, I'm happy to announce that starting on November 7th, 2021, I'll be teaching another course on the Neural Learning platform. This one's called Weird Religion, and it proposes a close and critical reading of G.K. Chesterton's eccentric work of Christian apologetics, Orthodoxy. So if you're interested in a non-evangelizing exploration of sacramental religion as a counterpoint to modern secularism, you may want to sign up for what is sure to be a strange trip. Find out more at neuralearning.com. That's N-U-R-A learning.com. And with that, here's our take on skepticism. Enjoy the show.
Hello, JF. <laughs> Hello, Phil. We're talking about skepticism today. Yeah. To some extent, I think it was prompted by a thread that was started on the Weird Studies subreddit. And uh, can't remember off. I should have done my homework and actually pulled it up. Hold on for a second. The Redditor's handle is And I'm the Devil. Very dramatic username. Yeah. So, yeah. And their question is basically anybody else here skeptic? And I guess expressing some irritation that perhaps we were dismissive of folks like the amazing Randy, James Randy. Yeah. So, you know, I think was maybe felt we were giving short shrift to people in the not so much. Well, this actually brings up the question. Are we talking about skepticism as a free floating thing that's like unattached to any particular movement right. or identity or ideology? Or are we talking about skepticism TM, like the skepticism that's a function of an organized and self-described skeptic movement? And my impression is that the question was sort of like, why are these guys hard on sort of movement skeptics? Yes. Although he's very polite and um, oh, yeah. uh, we, we actually had a very nice exchange. So I'm not saying this like it's a bad thing, but I thought this was an interesting question. You know, what is skepticism or what does skepticism look like when we look at it from a couple of different angles as an identity, even a lifestyle, if you will, or as a practice? as a cognitive orientation or maybe as something else, it seems like something we should talk about. Although yeah. I should say, I'm talking about it like this was all my idea. This was your idea. You wanted to talk about right. this. Well, it just seemed like uh, like a rich vein because that's the thing. Are, what are we talking about when we talk about skepticism? Are we talking about Robert Anton Wilson's skepticism, which is a, a metaphysical skepticism, which is much more deeply connected to the original meaning of skepticism in ancient Greece, right? Skepticism, I believe, was associated with the guys who ran the later Plato Academy, the academy after Plato passed on. A lot of them became skeptics. I don't know much about that um, whole kind of part of uh, Greek, the history of Greek philosophy, except that I know basically that the position was that they were attempting to engage with reality without having any beliefs. Uh, and a lot of their moves, to me, if I remember what I have read correctly, involved showing how any position you take will end up in a paradox, you know, eventually yeah. will lead to some kind of paradox. And you can see similar movements in Indian philosophy. So that type of skepticism, that's one thing. And I think that Robert Anton Wilson is kind of connected to this in the sense that he's like, experience without believing, you know, you experience reality as a, a phenomenal process in which you cannot draw any conclusions one way or the other. That's a type of skepticism we could talk about. And sometimes we've kind of espoused something like that in our conversations. Mm. But then there's skepticism in the sense that I think that listener on Reddit was using the term. And that is the modern, as you were saying, the more kind of positional skepticism, the skeptic who has cast him, her, themselves as a defender of a particular form of materialism. And to call that movement skepticism is a break with what that word has meant in philosophy. Mm. It's not mm. skepticism because it holds a positive position. Mm. It, it makes a positive claim about what is. 
it is not skeptical about that. And that's exactly what you pointed out in your reply to the listener on Reddit. You were saying something like, well, it questions everything except its own position. And indeed, that's what makes it not really a form of skepticism in the classical sense. It is skeptical of certain things, but it is skeptical of those things in the name of or on the basis of a positive claim that it can't prove, right? So, so that's the type of skepticism that I do find a little bit hilarious, especially when you see it manifested in the likes of James Randi and Michael Shermer. It, they seem to be unaware that they are themselves implicated in the paranormal, in a way that George P. Hansen makes quite clear in his book, The Trickster and the Paranormal, that since deception is kind of a structural part of the paranormal phenomenon. The phenomenon. Yeah, the phenomenon, as we say. Since deception seems to be just structurally part of that, these scientistic investigators who choose to, to wade into that territory, it seems like sometimes they don't realize that they have themselves become implicated in the, the trickery, which is part and parcel of the paranormal. But maybe we're jumping a little ahead of ourselves here. Maybe a little. Uh, maybe as an earlier step, we could explain the distinction that you made very much in passing between science and scientism. The confusion between those things is very widespread. Yeah, out there in these streets. So, you know, science is a method. It's not a body of beliefs or even a body of knowledge, although the body of knowledge is inseparable from the practice of science. But considered, well, at least from one point of view, science is a praxis. It's just, it's a thing you do according to certain understandings of reality. You have an understanding that reality is available to us through, first of all, our senses, or at least our perceptual apparatus, perhaps amplified by technology as with microscopes or telescopes. But nevertheless, that reality is palpable and it's also measurable, quantifiable, that what there is out there to know about out there is something amenable to human reason. And if we ask the right questions or if we investigate in the right way, we can come to a fuller knowledge of reality. And it's the manner of inquiry that is particularly important. It is empirical. So like the fact that I've already talked about just the basic assumption, the warrant of the scientific process, which is that reality is available to us through our senses. You can see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, etc. That it's thinkable by human beings. The scientific method, of course, is a way of asking questions about that empirically available reality. Questions that can be proved or disproved, or I should say for which proof or disproof is also available. So a lot of the questions that one has in the study of art are not questions of that kind. It's not really provable or disprovable that, um, just to take an example of something I was reading this morning about the country singer Hank Williams, that Hank Williams' characteristic vocal timbre, his ability to slip into a kind across the vocal passaggio into a kind of yodel territory is perhaps an expression of a certain kind of gender performance 
perhaps a feminization or perhaps a masculinization, if you think about falsetto singing in terms of, for example, what it is in a lot of black vernacular culture. Okay, so that's an interpretation, right? You can come up with suggestive evidence that might indicate it or make it seem less likely, but you're not able to come up with like measurable, quantifiable data that is going to tip the balance towards an unambiguous assertion that that is true or that is false. There are a lot of questions that hang out in that zone of like, well, that's kind of true. It's true-ish. Yeah. But science doesn't deal in those kinds of analog territories, right? It's digital. It's, it's look, I mean, this is not, I think, in, in, in the scientific mission statement. This is just my own interpretation. But it deals in quanta. It deals in discrete packets of verifiable or falsifiable knowledge. And the kinds of questions you ask about those little packets of knowledge have to do with, yeah, it's empirical, it's quantifiable. I mean, like science, as I've described it, would be capable of coming to an apprehension of so-called paranormal phenomena. You know, science, as I've described it, just as a kind of an epistemic orientation to the world conceivably could have much to tell us about UFO sightings, other things that are relegated to the rather less respectable and unscientific portions of our culture, right? But the thing is that science is never really just a pure, disembodied, bloodless kind of idea. It's always something that human beings are doing and something human beings are doing together. So it's a function of society. And also it has its own culture. Like all things that human beings do together, it evolves its own norms. It's questions it likes to ask. It's questions it doesn't like to ask. It's insiders, it's outsiders. And from that point of view, in a culture of science, asking questions about UFOs is distinctly not on. And it is the culture of scientism that is constantly being sold to us as science. Right. So when scientific popularizers like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Richard Dawkins, or for that matter, the amazing Randy, James Randi or Martin Gardner, notable figures in the skeptic community whom George P. Hansen discusses in that marvelous book of his, The Trickster and the Paranormal, those are people who are saying science means the rejection of UFOs, ghosts, yeah. uh, et cetera, paranormal yeah. things. Science means that reality is a certain way, that the only things that are valuable or worth our time and attention in reality are precisely those things that are not only accessible to our senses, but accessible to our measurement. And also an important aspect of it that I forgot to mention, repeatable. Something right. that, you know, it's a picture of reality. It's like that which is real is that which can be made to happen in a lab. Yes, Predictably, exactly. repeatably. Exactly. And the idea of scientism is bought in on a picture that reality is that which fits in a lab experiment. And that is not the same thing as the actual business of doing science. Those are distinct things. Right. You're right. So I've started trying to avoid using the term scientism. Sometimes it's impo impossible because I think it just – it doesn't really get to what's really going on. I think that what's really going on – you just kind of said it – is that science is a cultural – 
phenomenon first and foremost. It doesn't adopt a disembodied kind of perspective above the kind of uh, vicissitudes of, of history. It exists inside history, inside uh, institutions, inside societies. And so it's caught up in the vested interests of the various groups that lay claim to science within those societies. One thing that Hansen does in his book is that he argues that the secular cultural elite that is uh, a minority group in our society, but is nevertheless extremely influential, obviously, hence elite part, has a particular view of reality and the story that this elite tells itself and the story that it teaches to those who make their way into that elite uh, through the, the education system and all that, the story includes a shift at some point in the past, in, at the end of the Middle Ages, the beginning, from a superstitious world to a rational world, from a world that was basically rooted in vapid wish fulfillment to a world that is rooted in kind of a hard, secular, courageous uh, willingness to look reality in the face. And we've talked about this uh, ad nauseum in other episodes. And the skeptics that we've been talking about, James Randi, we'll use him as a kind of like mascot of the whole group, are indeed part of that world. But what's funny, and if you look at um, like the key argument in Hansen's book is that the paranormal, in fact, actually, I think Hansen would disagree that science could ever truly come to some real conclusions about paranormal phenomena, because according to Hansen, who has been doing that, doing science in parapsychology for decades, and he's, he's actually a very um, responsible and uh, careful scientist, his conclusion is that deception, as I was saying earlier, and uh, liminality and ambiguity are baked in to the whole sector of the real that we refer to as the paranormal. Or right. a sigh. It's profoundly and innately ambiguous. It is, as you just kind of said, it is unrepeatable. It is the world of the unrepeatable. And it is no less real for it. The skeptics like James Randi and Michael Shermer, these guys, they are themselves liminal figures of the cultural elite system of scientism. They are themselves like most scientists don't care what James Randi thinks. Right. right. Most scientists are just doing their scientific work. And actually, many of those scientists might, in the back of their heads, have doubts about the finality of the claims of materialism. Many scientists believe all kinds of crazy things. In fact, if you look at the, the scientists that really kind of broke ground in the last century, people like David Baum, people like uh, Albert Einstein, people like um, Heisenberg, a lot of their writings, a lot of their attempts to vulgarize their scientific ideas sound kind of paranormally, you know, and, yeah. uh, and they, they resort shamelessly to religious language to express their ideas. Then you have these professional skeptics who, in my mind, are similar to the officials in the Roman Empire who was sent to some, you know, remote provincial outpost because they fell afoul of their, you know, leaders in Rome and they find themselves on the periphery representing the capital. But they can't help but be tainted and be caught up in the business of being on the periphery. They, That's know, a very good analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You imagine some some drunk, desperate Roman functionary who's been kicked down a few pegs and is in some like 
garrison in Dalmatia or something. Exactly. It's like, oh, I fucking hate my life. And it's like, my job is to represent the empire, but like, you can just imagine, you'd end up like the the old colonial hand in the movie Black Narcissus. I forget the character's name, but uh, the right. agent, the British agent who is neither really English anymore, but he's not exactly of the country that he's been located in. He's not really of the Himalayas. Yeah. He's just this kind of... Well, liminal figure, neither this nor that, on the margins. On the margins, and, is pre- yeah. and it is precisely on the margins in a state of liminality that one finds the paranormal. Right. This is George P. Hansen's whole argument. Exactly. And so another analogy that I thought of was uh, when I was in grade eight, I changed schools in grade seven. I went from the Catholic system to the public system. And then in grade eight, I was heavily into Dungeons and Dragons. I was a real little nerd. And I had my little group of nerdy friends. And in grade eight, a kind of strange pyramidal hierarchy suddenly appeared in the school we were in. And you had like the really cool kids. And we were literally like at the bottom that year. Like we were being bullied. We were being pushed around, laughed at. Uh, It was horrible. My friends and I were literally like the kids from Stranger Things who get bullied in the schoolyard and get called all kinds of names. But there was this one kid, he was a, a nerd as well. And, it, you know, he would dress in like three-piece suits, in, you know, like, or like a tucked-in button shirt in grade eight. And like, just really kind of like straight-laced little kid. And he was friends with one or two of the top dogs in the hierarchy, but not enough to really hang out with them, but enough for them to say hi to him and treat him with some certain respect. So what he would do during recess, since he wasn't really welcome with them, to actually play games and he couldn't play sports, he would come over and bully us, just him alone, laughing at us, making fun of us in our face as we were doing our own things in our little corner of the schoolyard. And he was representing, again, this kind of cultural elite in the grade eight, in in our little society, but he was neither of that elite really, nor of our geek world. He was in between. This is how I see people like, Michael Shermer and James Randi. I see them as peripheral representatives of a society that wouldn't really have them as members. Mm. I actually mean that with a lot of respect because I think that they are themselves liminal figures implicated in the search for the meaning of the paranormal. So I'm not discrediting what they're doing. I'm just trying to show that they don't belong to the society they claim to belong to as much as they think they do. And uh, I think that a lot of uh, the, like, for example, Randy's million dollar test, you know, he offered a million dollar prize to anyone who could prove the existence of the paranormal to him. And all kinds of other shysters would come up and try to fool him. And it just seemed like it was a completely useless sideshow to the real work that parapsychologists are doing to try to investigate the reality of paranormal phenomena. It was a sideshow meant to bolster and reaffirm a a certain system of belief that James Randi, as a professional magician, as an illusionist, as a trickster himself, wasn't really a central member of, you know, to begin with. He was kind of already a peripheral figure in that world. Yeah. On page 152 of The Trickster and the Paranormal, which I really encourage our listeners to buy, there are so many garbage books in the space that deal with paranormal or magical or whatever phenomena. 
There's so much trash, and every now and then you find a little nugget of gold in that trash stratum, and this is one of them. In any event, page 152, he comes up with a two columns comparing Psychop, which is the most influential, or at least at the time of writing, this book is 20 years old, the most influential of skeptic organizations, and comparing Psychop with actual scientific societies. And it's a long list, and he just goes down the list and says, you know, scientific studies publish technical peer-reviewed journals that are primarily geared for specialists in the discipline. Psychop publishes no journal. It produces a popular magazine carrying cartoons and caricatures and recommends that technical papers be submitted to scientific periodicals. Uh, scientific journals are edited by specialists. Skeptical Inquirer, which is the main publication of Psychop, is edited by a journalist, and so on and so forth. Uh, the whole list just lays out a pretty comprehensive sense in which Psychop and similar organizations are not scientific organizations. And yet, there's always a little bit of a bait and switch. When you see people like, I don't know, people in your Facebook or whatever saying, well, science tells us, and then they link some piece of uh, popular science or popular debunking as if science were some Vatican-like monolithic authority that hands down dictates. Right. I mean, the dogmatic statements of what is and isn't possible are not coming from peer-reviewed scientific journals. They're coming from these journalistic organizations, but the trick is already happening on a certain level with the idea that this represents what quote unquote science thinks. You know, organizations like Psychop and publications like the Skeptical Inquirer do nothing to disillusion its readers on this front, that they'd like to come off like, oh, we're scientists, we're in the science game, and we as representatives of science are telling you that paranormal investigation is the greatest threat to rationality in our times or whatever. That yeah. always seems to be more or less the tenor of what they're saying. But there's already this kind of bait and switch going on, which is you know, speaking with establishment authority while actually not inhabiting an establishment position, which isn't to say that these guys are themselves terribly marginal. Psychop has a decent operating budget. They are institutional in the sense that they have roles and positions that exist independently of the people who hold them, as opposed to much more perishable organizations that aren't really institutions that we might associate more with like the new age or neo-paganism or just like the whole world of the weird that we're always talking about where organizations are very often pretty much interchangeable with the person who founded them. Yeah. So I'm not saying that, you know, Skeptical Inquirer is exactly like some new age group. I'm just saying that they have a little bit of that kind of hanging out on the margins, in this case, on the margins of science, and they are pulling a little bit of a trick on you by suggesting that they are part of a, a, an establishment that they don't quite belong to.
I was listening to Gordon White's interview with George Hansen last night as I took my walk and uh, on Rune Soup. Recommended. Uh, they come to some an interesting disagreement at one point that I, I was enjoying listening to. I didn't get to finish the show. But anyways, at one point at the beginning, Hansen explains that he, he was he's a science guy. He's a total left brain science guy. And how he started was that his father was a dowser. His father was a regular person, but he practiced dousing, which is the, the using a rod to try to find underground water sources to dig wells. My father-in-law got a douser when he had a farm. Uh, my wife grew up on a farm, and uh, he got a douser to pick the spot for the well, and it worked. And this douser was not some kind of new-agey sorcerer, <laughs> you know, from Toronto. He was himself a working farmer who had learned this from his father and practiced this in the most practical mindset you could possibly imagine for people who actually need a real working well. And this was the method they used. When Hansen, he's like, well, there's something to this. Have scientists looked at this stuff? And of course, then that led him to the Skeptical Inquirer. And then he would go to the library and he would look at the Skeptical Inquirer's assessment of a particular case in the history of the paranormal, of psi phenomena. And then he would compare it to the actual case studies that were done by the parapsychologists who first studied the, the, the case. And he realized that the Skeptical Inquirer was doing bad science. It wasn't doing science at all. Mm -hmm. Whatever hard evidence a case presented, it ignored, it skipped over. It stuck to those ambiguous parts. It was itself engaging in a type of behavior that hoaxers and frauds, who are not, by the way, according to Hansen and according to other, like for example, Lionel Snell was telling us the same thing, hoaxing and fraud doesn't mean that there's no real phenomenon going on along with it. Sometimes right. the faking is what leads to the real event to the real phenomenon kind of asserting itself or occurring. Right. So, so Ooh, I have I have such an anecdote to tell you that touches on that, but I don't want to interrupt you. No, I think I think I'm done there. So the, the question of motive always comes up. Like as you were talking earlier, I was like, well, why? Why do they just not say we don't understand this type of phenomenon? People see, experience certain things and we don't yet understand what it is. Instead of saying, no, 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 these people are liars. These people are tricking us. They're fooling us or they're credulous. And the most palpable anecdote that kind of um, answers that question for me is the famous scene in the life of Carl Jung, where Jung was sharing his ideas with Freud, his mentor. And Freud was getting increasingly tense as Jung is describing his ideas about archetypes and about the kind of like real uh, value of religious and mythological thought and all that. And at some point, Jung was like, what's wrong? What is it? And Freud says, you are about something to the effect of, you are about to unleash, quote, the black mud tide of occultism. And we, that, that phrase came up in our episode on... Um, Mumbo Jumbo. Ishmael Reed, right. And to me, it's not so much that certain people like Freud didn't believe in the paranormal. They knew Freud knew that some part of reality was not amenable to rational analysis. And that part of reality is innately chaotic and dangerous. And it's very important that we erect bulwarks, uh, uh, that we dig dikes, that we build walls to castellate ourselves from this part of reality. 
It's not that they don't believe. They do believe, or at least they believe that something they don't understand exists and they don't want it to pour in to their world. I think that that's an important aspect of it. I think in Hansen's account, basically, he's sort of thinking about the phenomenon, as we like to say, which is the phenomenon is a useful catch-all word that wraps up magic and the paranormal and all this various weird stuff that we talk about on the show. Um, He would say that the phenomenon itself has behavioral attributes. It acts in a certain way. I don't, you know, I don't know how deep he gets into personification, but there definitely is a whiff of personification here. He's almost talking about the phenomenon as if it were an agent itself. He says it has intelligence of some sort. Yeah. 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 And its behavioral characteristics are liminality, which we've already talked about, or marginality, that it's the kind of thing that's found on the margins, in the kind of in-between places, things that are kind of neither this nor that. It is characterized above all by tricksterishness, deceit, and not just like being predictable the way a liar is predictable. At least you know they always lie. It's also the unpredictable deceits. You just alluded to it. Sometimes the deceit is a necessary part of the revelation of a truth. Yeah. That the way deceit and truthfulness change places is itself a part of how the phenomenon behaves. Yeah. Constantly wrong-footing you, constantly yanking the rug out from under you. And another thing that is characterized by is anti-structure, which is a concept of the anthropologist Victor Turner that he makes much of. You know, I was just going on about institutions and saying like, you know, there's a difference between an institution and just an organization. An organization could be a little cult that somebody started to avoid paying taxes or something. And it's just like one guy and 12 other people or something. But that the organization is more or less synonymous with that individual, whereas an institution has, you know, permanent offices and it has a corporate structure. It has positions that are not identical to the people who fill those offices and so on. And his whole thing with the paranormal, with the phenomenon, is that it always has aspects of anti-structure. The people who get involved with it in academia themselves tend to be people for whom the hierarchy and authority of academia is very, very challenging, is a real difficulty. Very often, the people who are most associated with it aren't associated with institutions at all, which, you know, look at look at the intellectual weirdosphere, the little world where you and I pitch our tent. There aren't many working academics in that sphere. There's always a little bit of friction between the phenomenon and any institutional structure in which it might find itself. Because of the anti-structure element, because of its, its inherent liminality. Right, right. Yeah, and it, it almost seems corrosive of hierarchical structure. It's interesting, the... Skeptical Inquirer and PSYCOP and similar organizations themselves occupy an interesting position, a marginal and liminal position, not quite this, not quite that. They're not like proper institutional forms of science for all the reasons that Hansen mentions on that page that I was quoting and elsewhere. But then at the same time, they are institutional. Uh, Hansen likes to point out that the skeptical community. It's very, very male, like overwhelmingly male. It's overwhelmingly focused on hierarchy and structure. The organization itself is a proper institutional structure, as I was explaining earlier. 
And yet, he says somewhere, that is to say, Hansen says somewhere, it's almost as if such organizations are tainted by their long contact with the paranormal. Most scientists don't really handle the paranormal one way or the other. Yeah. But Psychop is constantly dealing with it. Uh, it's almost a monomania. And it's sort of like, yeah, it gets a little bit tainted by it. And so you find, you know, even within this very hierarchical structure, an elite structure, you find this roguish element, these little tricks, like, for example, your Hansen's description of looking into what the Skeptical Inquirer had to say about dousing and realizing that just all the misleading moves that are made in order to safeguard an idea of science that is, and this is another deception, another bait and switch, constantly presenting a culture of science as if it is the pursuit of science. To jump back to the beginning of this conversation, or earlier in this conversation, when I was saying, like, there's science, which is like a mode of knowing or a technique of knowing, and then there's a culture of science. And the bait and switch is to act as if they're the same thing. So, you know, in the characteristic rhetorical move, we were like, well, what are you, anti-science? Yeah. If, for example, you complain that scientists are not taking UFO research seriously, what are you, anti-science? It's just sort of like, well, no, there's nothing in science as such that would prohibit it from asking questions about UFOs. And that seems to be George Hansen's point of entry, is yeah. that he wanted to ask scientific questions about dowsing. Well, yeah, the dowsing was uh, his personal connection. He was looking at uh, hauntings and all kinds of things. In the oh, no, I know in his yeah. professional life. I'm, I'm just saying his way in, his on-ramp to this stuff. Right. And what he found, the Skeptical Inquirer, is the direct conflict between science as a mode of thought and science as a culture. Exactly. Exactly. That's, you know, realizing like, oh, you totally could ask scientific questions about this, but we don't because... One doesn't. It's not comme il faut. And if yeah. you say that, then someone like Martin Gardner, or James Randi, or Michael Shermer is going to say, well, you're just against science. But they're doing that bait and switch of saying, of acting as if the culture of science is interchangeable with the pursuit of science. And of course, why? The motive, again, I go back like to the black mud tide. You know, nobody wants that black mud tide pouring back into our world uh, with its irrational forces and all that. Um, yes. You know, a really interesting book that I, and a beautiful book. It's a photography book by Shannon Taggart. I got to meet her recently and she gave a talk in, in, in London. I attended virtually this talk that she was also giving virtually. She wasn't actually in London. She released a book called Seance which uh, contains uh, photographs that she took over several years hanging out with spiritualists, which I confess, I didn't even know spiritualism still really existed. Hmm. But there are little towns in New England. These are kind of like important communities in the spiritualist movement, which still exists. And spiritualism, of course, is a Victorian, uh, well, 19th century uh, spiritual movement, which tried to marry science and spirituality. The original intent was to look at spiritual phenomena with an open mind and try to investigate it scientifically. So, for instance, the, the Society for Psychical Research, when it was founded in the 1880s, was housed within the kind of headquarters of the Spiritualist Society of Great Britain in London. And so the spiritualists continue to practice. So now I th my impression is that now spiritualism has become more of a kind of religious movement. It's kind of a spiritual um, creed of sorts that uh, practice. 
and it still involves seances and stuff, but it's it's changed a lot because of a lot of the fraud that was exposed uh, over the years. For instance, at the beginning, the seances were performed in dark rooms because it was said the darkness was conducive to the phenomenon, was helpful, which may be true. But of course, then the skeptics were like, ah, you want it to be dark so you can trick us without us seeing you. And sure enough, there has been some fraud. But of course, for every case of fraud that's been exposed, there's like a dozens of cases that were not investigated at all, or that if they were investigated, no fraud was found. Um, and that's the kind of like uh, the hoodwink that goes on in these things. If you look at the, the skeptical literature, it just looks like everybody who's ever made the claim was a fraud. But of course, that's because it leaves out all the cases where uh, yeah. the contrary might have been indicated. And the thing about that I love about Shannon is that she went into this with an open mind. She took these wonderful, incredible photos, many of which contain strange anomalies that she doesn't make a claim one way or the other about. She's just showing you the photos. There are photos, of, for example, of a woman during a seance with a, a kind of doubling of her face beside her. And of course, that could be just a photographic defect. But the fact that that particular glitch happens at that particular moment, and also the fact that after the this particular seance, some of the participants said to the woman, we saw a face beside you. Shannon hadn't seen it, but she saw it when she developed the photo. All these things, it's kind of, it blurs the line between fraud and authenticity. It's like, was it a photographic glitch? Maybe, but some people had seen a face hovering beside this woman's face during the seance uh, or orbs and that sort of thing. So the, the, the book is really worth checking out. It's really a beautiful beautiful book released in 2019, I believe. Mm. And one of the people that Shannon got to meet was a guy called Kai Mugi. I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Mugi. He's a German uh, medium who was one of the few people until recently to still produce what spiritualists called apports. It comes from the, the French word apal, which are physical manifestations of spiritual stuff, including ectoplasm. So this guy would produce ectoplasm, which is kind of a weird gossamer-like substance that mediums used to like expectorate or like somehow um, uh, vomit out these, or, or it sometimes it came out of their eyes or nose, this uh, strange white gossamer-like substance that would then take on different shapes, like the shape of hands in prayer or the shape of a face, or sometimes just it was just like webbing coming out of them. And then, of course, the ectoplasm had to be reabsorbed by the medium because it was said to be part of their body somehow. And so there was a lot of skepticism around that, obviously. And uh, some people were exposed as having faked it. And then most spiritualist communities stopped with the ectoplasm stuff because of that, because they were trying to maintain a certain credibility. And uh, so Taggart actually photographed Kai Mugi, this modern medium, producing ectoplasm. But of course, at some point, somebody released somehow a screenshot of his eBay page where he was purchasing tons of uh, Halloween spiderweb uh, stuff. You know? <laughs> um, and he continues to do his things. Now he's actually doing full manifestations, which means like out of his spirit cabinet, as they call it, he's bringing forth like actual figures that like step out like weird kind of ectoplasmic puppets. So he's still doing his thing. But the, the thing is that now the seeds of doubt have been planted. And of course, you have to wonder given all we've said, whether that screenshot of his eBay page is even authentic. He's never actually even bothered to respond to the accusations. He just kept doing his thing. 
or how in the first place someone might have access to his private account. That, that, that doesn't seem to have been a question anyone thought was worth asking. Sorry, I'm going on. But there's also another case that she doesn't talk about in her book. It's, this is a poltergeist case from the late 70s, the Enfield poltergeist, which was uh, investigated by the Society for Psychical Research in Britain. And a lot of crazy shit happened, like stuff flying off shelves and that sort of thing. But also the two little girls who were the center of the phenomenon supposedly tried to, to fake certain things. But then, of course, some of the stuff they couldn't have faked. So it's weird. It's just really, really weird. And, and there's another anecdote, just to finish up. Uh, a famous medium, I think she was an Italian medium, can't remember her name. I just read this somewhere recently. She was tested by um, the Psychical Research Society. And at the beginning, she's like, "You ha somebody has to be holding me down. If you don't hold my arms down, I'll cheat. Oh, that's interesting. You know? <laughs> Yeah, so it's like the phenomenon itself is so profoundly tricksterish that it gets the medium to cheat. It's just kind of crazy, uh, but yeah. it's no less authentic for it. That's well, the then why? And and then you have to ask why would the phenomenon do that? You know, this is getting back to the question of motive that you were talking about before. What's in it for? You know, people like Martin Gardner or James Randi who are almost obsessive in their focus on. The paranormal. That's not quite fair to say about Martin Gardner, who really was a man of parts and a lot of irons in the fire. But a lot of professional skeptics types, they continue banging on about faith healers and stuff to the extent that I've seen some people in the skeptic community being like, why do we keep beating up on palm readers and tarotists and so on, people who just set up a little psychic studio in their house? Like, why are these people? public enemy number one. Don't we have better things to do? Yeah. You know, you kind of got to ask, okay, so why the paranormal? Why do we keep coming back to that? And one thing that's suggested to me at any rate from reading Hansen is that it's kind of because the paranormal wants it that way. Yeah. It suits the phenomenon. This is something we've talked about since almost the very first show, that it is in the nature of the phenomenon to hide from too much attention. It's the kind of thing where like, if you pay attention to it, it'll run away from you and it'll make you look like an asshole, leave you holding the bag, it'll leave you looking stupid. And if you get out there and you really are arguing publicly for the authenticity of this or that psychic, you're just asking yourself to be left twisting in the wind. Like something will happen to that psychic that you're upholding in, in public to cast doubt on them. And then you'll look like an asshole right, or, right. You'll, or you'll look gullible, right? Yeah. So there's something about the phenomenon that doesn't like you to pay attention to it, but it doesn't quite want to be ignored either. So like, if you pay attention to it, it'll run away from you. If you ignore it, it'll run after you. Yeah. So what's its game? I've yeah. said this in our in our um, William James on psychical research episode. Its game seems to be to keep us on the hook, always on the hook, always on this razor's edge between evidence for and evidence against. Yeah. You know, one of the things that James says in the Confessions of a Psychical Researcher, I think that's the later of the two pieces we talked about in that episode, that when he started doing psychical research decades before, he figured that like any other scientific problem, that either they would 
come closer to showing that psychical phenomena are real, or they would come closer to disproving psychical phenomena. One way or another, some progress would be made. Yeah. Yeah. In one direction or another. But what he didn't expect was that they would remain at the exact same (laughs) balance point between belief and doubt, evidence for and evidence against. And it just seems to be like... Well, except the phenomenon, the phenomenon does that shit. And just to finish my thought, then from that point of view, I've actually said this about Wikipedia, but like you could say this about the skeptic movement, skeptic phenomenon in general. It's serving the phenomenon by making sure that it stays anti-structural, that it never gets to the point that it can be really embraced with open arms by a scientific or academic authority. The skeptical inquirer folks keep it on the margins. They keep it disreputable. They are doing work for the phenomenon, even if they're not aware of it. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying, I guess, trying to get out of the beginning. But that's really beautifully said. I think you're right. At the same time, I'm... (laughs) I'm a little resistant to the idea, to this kind of like uh, uniformizing way of referring to all this, these disparate phenomena as the phenomenon. Oh, yeah. It's a convenience, right? No, no, but it's, no, I know, I know that how you're using it, but it, it, often in the literature, like in John Keel, he seems to come to the conclusion that there's kind of one thing happening here. Right, right. Um, and I resist that because we don't know enough. Is yeah. it? Is the tricksterish element of paranormal phenomena evidence of some kind of unified, intelligent design behind it? Or is it just a structural component, a structural side effect of approaching a number of different aspects yeah. of reality? So and I'm more uh, yeah. inclined to the second view myself. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Because the fact is this. It's true. William James was right. In terms of the research that was done by his organization in the time he was um, part of it, no real progress had been made one way or another. However, we live in a universe where weird stuff actually does happen that is not reducible to fraud or to credulity or... Or Or insanity. yeah, Yeah, or hallucination. Example, this is an article from the Daily Record a Scottish tabloid that I looked up, and it's not the equivalent of the National Enquirer. And it's it's an article from 2016 describing how some cops were called to a, a home in Scotland by a very distressed family, and they came upon a scene of absolute horror with like clothes flying across the room, um, a chihuahua getting levitated onto a hedge, all kinds of crazy shit happening. And there are many, many, many instances of police witnessing things like that. Those things aren't investigated by James Randi. And the cops were so spooked, they actually saw things happen that we can't explain. And this is why... I don't remain agnostic about these things. I'm not agnostic because I believe people when they tell me things, because I myself have seen strange things and I want people to believe me when I tell them. So it just seems like J.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, has a whole bit that maybe I should just read it. It's not very long, where he lays down 
uh, his reasons for believing that the supernatural, as he calls it, is a real thing. And in this passage that I'm going to read, he talks about miracles, but he includes ghosts in that. So he's using the word miracle to signify what we we are saying when we say the paranormal, things that seem to uh, to break the laws of reality as we know them. He says, my belief that miracles have happened in, in human history is not a mystical belief at all. I believe in them upon human evidences, as I do in the discovery of America. Upon this point, there is a simple logical fact that only requires to be stated and cleared up. Somehow or other, an extraordinary idea has arisen that the disbelievers in miracles consider themselves coldly and fairly, while believers in miracles accept them only in connection with some dogma. The fact is quite the other way. The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have a doctrine against them. The open, obvious, democratic thing is to believe an old apple woman when she bears testimony to a miracle, just as you believe an old apple woman when she bears testimony to a murder. The plain, popular course is to trust the peasant's word about the ghost exactly as far as you trust the peasant's word about the landlord. Being a peasant, he will probably have a great deal of healthy agnosticism about both. Still, you could fill the British Museum with evidence uttered by the peasant and given in favor of the ghost. If it comes to human testimony, there is a choking cataract of human testimony in favor of the supernatural. Obviously, the idea of the supernatural wouldn't exist if it weren't for supernatural events. This is me, sorry, interjecting here. Continuing now, if you reject the supernatural, you can only mean one of two things. You reject the peasant's story about the ghost either because the man is a peasant or because the story is a ghost story. That is, you either deny the main principle of democracy which is to trust people and to give them the benefit of the doubt, or you affirm the main principle of materialism, the abstract impossibility of a miracle. You have a perfect right to do so, but in that case, you are the dogmatist. It is you, rationalists, who refuse actual evidence being constrained to do so by your creed. But I am not constrained by any creed in the matter, and looking impartially into certain miracles of medieval and modern times, I have come to the conclusion that they occurred. All argument against these plain facts is always argument in a circle. If I say medieval documents attest certain miracles as much as they attest certain battles, they answer, but medievals were superstitious. If I want to know in what they were superstitious, the only ultimate answer is that they believed in miracles. If I say a peasant saw a ghost, I am told the peasants are so credulous. If I ask why credulous, the only answer is that they see ghosts. Yeah. The fact is that those cops in Scotland saw stuff flying around a room. They saw things that no one can explain. They are a drop in the notion of people who have seen things like this. Now, some people say, well, I would believe it, but I never experienced anything. But if you're a democratic person, if you believe in democracy and the basic principles of democracy, you don't need to have experience it yourself to be open to it. You just need to give some trust to the, right. to the persons who have experienced these things. That's why I do more than just say I'm agnostic. I believe that these things happen. Do I believe that ghosts are the spirits of the departed dead? That's going too far. But I think that ghost is a good descriptor for a certain class of phenomena. That's a much better descriptor than bad plumbing. And to say I saw a ghost... And then for a skeptic to come and say, no, you experience the effects of bad plumbing or carbon monoxide, that's a bait and switch as well. Because when I say I saw a ghost, 
I'm providing a description of what, I ha what happened to me. And when you say it was bad plumbing or carbon monoxide, you're giving me a causal reduction, an abstraction of what happened to me. It's not the same order of explanation. bunch of responses to this. One is to, you know, where you were talking about like the bait and switch. This is something I actually responded to the original poster on Reddit. It was a very civil conversation, by the way, yeah. everybody was being cool about it. And everybody was engaging in a real conversation and not the kind of bullshit internet fake conversation, which is just everybody yelling at each other. At some point, someone asked, like, well, what do you mean exactly by skepticism? And I think he said something to the effect of, like, well, you could kind of think of skepticism and materialism as being more or less interchangeable. And I responded to that. I'm going to read what I wrote just so that I'm not stumbling around for ages trying to paraphrase myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a problem with identifying skepticism with any ism, whether that be materialism or anything else. If you equate skepticism and materialism, you are assuming materialism as a vantage point from which the errors and fallacies of other ways of thinking become evident. Materialism becomes a vantage point privileged as truth, as against all others, which are axiomatically less true. Now, skepticism is supposed to be the business end of truth-finding. It's a tool by which one can sift the true and the false. But then the problem is that skepticism in service of something already held true, for example, materialism, has an obvious blind spot. It becomes a tool for understanding everything except its own warrants. And in the next paragraph I wrote, I'm kind of getting into how this is maybe kind of a tricksterish move, this bait and switch, not for a moment suggesting that the original poster on the subreddit was engaging in this bait and switch in any kind of conscious way, but it's just something that happens on the level of thought. It's endemic to discussions on, on this subject. It's like, for instance, a Buddhist apologist seeking to determine the truth value of Christianity and saying that it is less true than Buddhism, Christianity that is, because it has no notion of emptiness. Well, that would only be a problem if you already assumed that any truthful religion would include the notion of emptiness. If the Buddhists were saying, I am merely a skeptic with no agenda but the truth, and I am seeking to determine the true value of Christianity, we would easily see how disingenuous this is. 
we could easily see that the Buddhist is posing as a judge while executing the office of prosecutor. The pretense of disinterested reason would be exposed as just that, a pretense. It would be an instance of the logical fallacy of petitio principi, having your conclusions already baked into your question, which is why it's known as begging the question. Put much more briefly, any skepticism worth its salt would have to be capable of questioning its own warrants. That isn't going to happen if it is a priori tied to any school of thought. So that's a kind of a logic chopping way of pointing out a problem with a uh, the way skepticism is allied with materialism or scientific naturalism in a fairly straightforward and unproblematic way by many of its proponents. It's I actually, I've quoted this bit of doggerel a bunch of times on the show, but I love it because it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Benjamin Jowett, the translator of Plato, master at Balliol College, Oxford, famously Donish Don, about whom the undergraduates made up a rhyme. My name is Benjamin Jowett. I'm the master of Balliol College. Whatever is knowledge, I know it. And what I don't know isn't knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> if you say, oh, I'm a skeptic, and you're, you're a skeptic within an ism that defines what knowledge is or can be, then everything that fits into your ism counts as legitimate knowledge. Everything that doesn't, doesn't. Well, you can see the logical problem with this. You decide that reality is a certain way, and then you criticize phenomena or people talking about that phenomena because it doesn't fit with that idea of reality. That yeah. to me maybe is the most fundamental bait and switch going on here. Yeah, it is. It's the bait and switch that Chesterton points out. It's that the party that's accusing the other of dogmatism is itself married to dogmatism, which the believers in such phenomenon are not. First of all, you could be a Buddhist, a Christian, a spiritualist, a Muslim, and believe in ghosts. What a ghost is, it's immaterial. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In more than one sense, yeah. The, the thing is that the person who believes isn't taking a stand in the same way as the skeptic is. The yes is not the, of the same order as the no. The yes is simply saying, this is what I experienced, or I believe you when you tell me what you experienced. Right. The no is a no to, that's why Chesterton says it's so undemocratic. It's a no to the claim, to the report. What you say cannot be true because I have decided that such things don't happen. Right. right even right. though they happen to you. So it's yeah. like, I think it comes from a, a lack of appreciation for the middle term of the kind of epistemic binary of yes and no, which is maybe, right? And there's a great quote from the, an essay we discussed in another episode by William James, his essay on pessimism. He wrote, but maybe, maybe, one now hears the positivist contemptuously exclaim, what use can a scientific life have for maybes? Well, I reply, James continues, the scientific life itself has much to do with maybes, and human life at large has everything to do with them. Not a victory is gained, not a deed of faithfulness or courage is done, except upon a maybe. And the maybe is not, it, it, it's not an agnostic in-between yes and no. It's not an agnostic position between yes and no. It's a yes to the infinite possibility of the situation we've been put in. The maybe is what breaks us out of the black and white Pepsi Coke false dichotomy that's been presented to us, the better to control us. <laughs> yeah, I respond 
to almost everything you say, the one thing that I would want to do at this point in the conversation is to insist, though, that skepticism is not the enemy. Because if you are accepting the terms of either true believers, like imagine some stereotype, woolly-headed New Ager, believing in the healing powers of crystals and who knows what else, and then there's a, a binary opposition. There's a Their opposite number would be a skeptical inquirer type of person who loves to write or read articles fulminating against people who are into the healing power of crystals. What I don't want is to fall into that binary and be like, yeah, I'm on the New Ager side, or yeah, I'm on the skeptic side. What I've been trying throughout this conversation to do is to rescue or retrieve an idea of skepticism that isn't tied to an ism. I might have some difficulty saying exactly what that looks like, but it might look a little bit actually like the practice of an apophatic mysticism, where you were constantly saying, you were talking about saying yes to things, but you might also just as easily say no to things. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. I was saying we should say maybe to things. That's what I said. Well, you were also saying that the maybe is actually secretly a yes. Well, yeah, but it's not the yes of the positivist claimant. It's not the yes of the person who thinks they know. It's the yes of the person who asserts infinite possibility. Yeah. But that being said, I really don't want to fall into a thing where it's just sort of like for our side to win, we would have to prove that the universe is capable of coughing up miracles. Because one thing that you have said plenty on the show, we've both said, and you said it recently, actually, in our last episode, the one with Connor on Joy Williams breaking and entering right around the 38 minute mark, as I recall, you're saying like reality itself is weird. It just is. It's like kind of like in its essence, in the most mundane manifestations, ordinary shit. You don't need ghosts. You don't need weird shit to happen in order to perceive a kind of profound weirdness of reality. From that point of view, reality is skeptic proof, if by skeptic we mean somebody who is out to simply to debunk or to engage in a kind of disenchantment of the world, to use Max Weber's expression. And George Hansen does get at that question of motive. What's in it for these institutions that are locking horns with the phenomenon that seek to oppose it? The skeptic can go tilting against spirit mediums and crystal healing all they want, But reality is still going to be strange in a way that their critique can't touch. And this brings me to this story that I have, this this anecdote. So I teased you this on Thursday, I think, or Wednesday. I said, I just had this crazy thing happen, but I'm not going to tell you about it till we're recording on Friday, because I'm curious what your reaction to it is. So do you remember like a year ago, pretty much exactly a year ago, I went for a walk in a path in Bloomington called the Limestone Extension with my dog, Mm -hmm. and I saw a doppelganger. So to recap that story for the listeners who I don't assume have heard it already, so I was walking with my dog, and it was a glorious fall day, sort of a perfect day of a sort we don't often get in Bloomington. And as I'm walking down, I see an unusual sight, which is a woman about 60-ish with short iron gray hair, wearing a long sleeve plaid shirt, blue slacks, walking slowly and reading out of a large hardback book, looking neither left nor right, completely tuning out 
everyone else on the path and indeed the beautiful scenery around us walking slowly reading this book. And I registered it because that's a slightly weird thing to see for a number of reasons, not least. Like how often do you see somebody out on a, a nature walk, completely ignoring nature and reading a book while they walk, like insistently reading a book. Like that's right. why they're on the walk. And I remember thinking like, shit, you know, why, why even go for a walk if you're just going to completely ignore the fact that you're taking a walk? And then a couple of hundred yards down the path, some I see somebody emerging from around a corner and it's the same person or what appears to be the same person. Looks exactly the same, wearing exactly the same clothes, reading what appears to be the identical hardback book. And likewise, shuffling slowly and paying zero attention to the environment. And seeing one person like that is strange enough. Seeing two is impossible. <laughs> and and I also explained that there is, because of the way the path is cut on a old rail bed, which is raised above like just untamed bush. There's no way, even if you were an athlete, there's no way you could double back, that there would have been some way for the first person to double back without me seeing her and then come around the corner again. And so I was like, really, I was actually kind of shaken by that. I was like, I saw a doppelganger, a double. I saw this strange thing. And then I saw the, a repetition of the thing. It felt almost like a hiccup in reality, like a glitch in the matrix. Like it just accidentally showed me the same thing twice impossibly, right? So anyway, on Wednesday, I was out walking my dog and I was on the limestone trail again. And same park, same park. Yeah. Except I'm almost back at the little place where I parked my car. There's a little parking lot. And as I'm coming up on the road that I have to cross in order to get to the parking lot, I see the doppelgangers. I see both of them. They're together. <laughs> and it's exactly as I saw it the first time. They look identical, obviously identical twins. They're wearing identical clothing, long sleeve flannel shirts, somewhat unseasonable in the warm weather. Both of them slowly walking, reading out of a large hardback book. And again, it seemed to be what? the same book. <laughs> and they're paying zero attention to each other. So they might have been ghosts to each other, but they're kind of together. Like there was zero chance that they were unaware of one another's presence. They were just doing their thing, which is to walk slowly and tune everything out and read their book. The same identical book that their identical twin is reading. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, you know, <laughs> oh okay. So like, if you're a, if you're a movement skeptic type, skeptic and not in the open sense of just like being having an apophatic relationship to reality, but like skeptic in the sense of like, you know, long time paid up subscriber to the skeptical inquirer, then this story is music to your ears because this is a classic. At first I thought it was a supernatural thing. And then I realized there is a perfectly reasonable mundane explanation that fits within a materialist frame. I don't know well, about reasonable, but <laughs> yeah. It's not reasonable at all. Okay, so <laughs> the truth is that there is a pair of identical twins that wear identical clothes, apparently the same clothes, because they were wearing the same fucking clothes that I saw them wearing a year ago. Yeah. And their thing is to take slow walks down this, this trail, both of them ignoring one another, but both of them doing the exact same identical activity. 
That, in a way, is weirder than if they were just a doppelganger. Yeah. Like, that's as <laughs> at least as weird to me as the idea that I saw somebody doing this one thing and then I saw, like, a double of them somehow, right. like a paranormal double. Right. This is actually weirder. Like, reality coughed up a strange little thing. Now, What's also weird about it is that I got to experience that twice, that I got closure on this and I got closure on it. The synchronicity of it, yeah. Exactly. Like two days before we're going to have this conversation. So we planned on having a conversation. And this kind of, this was a a denouement of this seemingly supernatural situation that perfectly illustrates what I'm saying, which is it doesn't matter whether something has a supernatural cause or not. The weird is still there. Skepticism could never touch it. Like, I have given you a sequel to that story that will surely warm the cockles of any skeptic's heart. And yet, that story doesn't demolish the basic proposition of this show, which is that reality is in its nature weird. Reality is capable of coughing up shit like that and, in fact, does that on the regular, every day, in every human life. Absolutely. But I think you're just saying what I was saying in a different language. It's like, if everything is fundamentally weird, then everything is a kind of miracle. Now I'm remembering the conversation we had about tea boiling and how the boiling point of water isn't inscribed in some platonic hyperspace that scientists can go and consult in some kind of Akashic book of science with like actual laws about reality. The laws have no reason for being laws. Therefore, the law that water has a boiling point, we call it a law, but what it is, it is the result of repeated observations of water boiling and noticing that they boil at this particular point. Uh, The reason why water boils at 100 degrees Celsius is because it has done so, so far. That's the reason. And the thing is that once you realize that causality is never inferred logically, then you know that on some level, every causal event is a kind of miracle. And so there's no difference to me between saying reality is fundamentally weird, therefore every event, no matter how mundane, is equally weird to the strangest supernatural poltergeist activity you know, that's been reported because you've already opened up this chasm under us. You've made the ordinary a miracle. So at this point, to me, you have all the more reason to listen to people when they report strange things happening because you know for a fact that our universe is capable of producing such events. You know it. It's not apophatic. It's kind of cataphatic. That's why, Mm. maybe that's just two ways of looking at it. In fact, it's just Mm. two different attitudes to the same fact. But the fact is a fact. The fact is that we know that our universe is capable of producing even the strangest events. And it doesn't even need a reason to do so. So I've actually talked about this passage before. This is from Magic Without Tears by Alistair Crowley. And there's a chapter in it called Coincidence, where he is counseling a student against becoming seduced by bizarre synchronicities. Everything that happens, no matter what, is an inconceivably improbable coincidence. You remember how you had to begin 
when you first came to me for help, I said to you, here are you and no other person come to see me and no other person in this room and no other room at this time and no other time. How did that come about? The answer to that question is the first entry in your magical diary and with a slightly different object in view, the first step in the practice of the acquisition of a magical memory. Why hang it all? The events of the last hour, even, might have gone just an infinitesimally little bit different, and the interview would not have taken place as it did. Consider, then, that factors stretching back into eternity, all the factors there are, have each one contributed in its degree to bringing this interview about. What a fantastic improbability! Yet here we are. Chance blindly rules the universe. But what is chance? And where does purpose intervene? And basically just what he wants to say, the end, every phenomenon soever is equally improbable and infinitely so. The universe is therefore nothing but coincidence. Which is another way of saying nothing but miracle. Exactly. Precisely. And I remember first reading that and being very deflated because I was very caught up in the idea that I was this remarkable sort of person who was able to precipitate weird synchronicities someone deflating to be told that what you're doing is actually perfectly normal and you're not really doing it, the universe is doing it, and that you're only picking and choosing certain showy, flashy things from a vast tissue of miracles that are happening all the time. But as I've gone a little bit more you know, older, if not wiser, I think I've come around to Crowley's way of thinking. I think he's right. But it takes a lot of practice, perhaps the practice of magical memory or any of the other practices that Crowley enjoins for us to truly come to understand that. Yeah, or you could say that you need those kind of sensational miracles to remember that everything that led up to that amazing miracle and everything that's followed it since is no less miraculous. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>